0: So we are uh, starting a new, I guess you'd call it a series this week. We don't really do series here, we go by the lectionary text, but um, normally we're spending our times in the Gospels, but uh, this week starts uh, several weeks in the book of Ephesians, and uh, for whatever reason I just felt compelled to kind of take that track. So we're going to jump into the book of Ephesians, and we're not going to necessarily go verse by verse, like old school Ecclesia, where we spent, you know, nine years in Luke, but um, we, uh, we are going to kind of take the, the, the lectionary track through the book and cover most of that, that writing. And uh, as we do that, uh, this is, of course, called the, uh, A Letter to the Ephesians. And uh, it is part of uh, the New Testament that are called The Letters because they are basically other people's mail that we have found from a couple thousand years ago. And so I want to talk just for a second about just kind of reading these particular kinds of writings in Scripture. Uh, Because the truth is that reading the letters in the New Testament can be a little bit difficult. Um, In the same way that if you just walked up and pulled out a letter, imagine people still wrote letters. Um, If you pulled out a letter from someone's mailbox that was actually not about uh, renewing uh, their auto insurance or whatever the, uh, the things are that you get in the mail. But were actually like a correspondence from someone and just read one side of it. Um, you're going to get to know some things about the writer, you're going to get to know some things about the recipient, uh, but there's still a lot of context that you might be missing, right? You don't know what the relationship was like, you don't know if things are going well or going poorly, you don't know uh, what's going on, and so it can be difficult sometimes. And as, as Christians who have this as part of our scriptures uh, that we consider authoritative, it can be difficult to read these things. It's not really uh, appropriate, I don't think, to uh, randomly grab verses or, or you know, single lines out of letters like this, out of context, and just kind of try and make them stand on their own. It's important to try and understand the world into which they're being written. Um, and so that's why these letters can be difficult, and they can be difficult to preach out of. And there's been a lot of things uh, done in Christian history that were not so great based on pulling things out of context out of these letters, right? Sometimes over and against even what Jesus taught at times. Um, And so uh, that can be difficult about this. But the good news is that Ephesians is different than most of the other letters. Uh, Because the chances are this was not actually a letter written to the Ephesians. And I know that's false advertising, given, given that the book is called A Letter to the Ephesians. But after we put together scriptures, we found older copies of this letter, and they didn't even mention Ephesus. And so what we think probably happened, and by we I mean theologians and historians who I read, not me, I'm not smart enough, but what they think happened is that this was just kind of a general thing that was written, almost like an extended sermon, and then it got passed from place to place, and so when the church at Ephesus was going to get one, they would write Ephesus on there, and they would kind of get passed around, and they think it probably was written... Uh, by someone who considered themselves a, a disciple of or, a, or an apostle of Paul, but probably not Paul himself because a lot of the language is different, a lot of the words are different, and normally you can find these consistencies in what Paul wrote, and Ephesians doesn't have a lot of those things. Uh, they also think it probably borrowed a good bit from Colossians, uh, that whoever put together this sermon had a chance to read Colossians before they did it because there's a lot of similarities and a lot of overlap there, right? But what it means for us is that um, what we don't have to do is spend a lot of time studying Ephesus and what was exactly was happening in that town and what was happening in this particular church and who were the people at play because there's not going to be specific names mentioned. It's really not going to go after specific situations. It's going to talk more broadly to the church at large. So that makes Ephesus a, a little easier on that level. It's not necessarily an easy book. In fact, there's some downright difficult things in, uh, in Ephesians. But that's kind of the nature of the book. Think of it as an extended sermon that we're going to break down over over several weeks. Um, And so um, that that allows us, again, to read a little more objectively. Now, I know that we tend to spend uh, most of our time in the Gospels, right? In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and looking at the teachings and life and uh, and, and the, the works of Jesus. Uh, and we look a lot at God in the flesh and blood and how God navigated this world in the life of Jesus and uh, this very kind of messy and broken situations and this person that needs healing and these folks that are scared and these resurrections from the dead and all these kind of things right and we spend a lot of time talking about God kind of with our feet firmly planted on the ground and I think that is a good and beautiful thing I love that about uh, the way we approach our faith in this community and the the things that we talk about. Uh, For me, a lot of my church history was spent talking about God in ways that felt very disconnected from real life. Uh, And so I I like that we try to really make sure we bring those things together, which to me was the point of the incarnation, right? Um, I love exploring that space where God is found kind of in our mess. But with that said, it is good sometimes, as I even mentioned in our prayer earlier, to take a step back And to take a deep breath and to look at the big picture. Uh, To get outside of the messiness of our daily lives and maybe stand in a little bit of awe of our creation and our creator. Our faith, like our life in general, should have those moments that take your breath away a little bit. They should have those moments where we stop and we realize what a miracle all of this is. Those moments of awe, of grandiosity, we should have those moments. We step back and we see the miracle of it all, right? And not just what's right in front of us. And into this, uh, the book of Ephesians uh, begins with a bang because the beginning of Ephesians is this grand cosmic flood of praise. It starts big. It's grandiose language about who God is and what God intends for humanity and all of creation, right? It is poetic and it is cosmic in in scope. And um, if we only had this, it would seem pretty disconnected or strange from our lives uh, that we live on a day-to-day basis. Uh, But it is important, again, to take a step back sometimes and remember this 10,000-foot view of everything, and so what I'm going to ask you to do is to open yourselves up uh, to these uh, initial verses. Uh, don't get too cerebral. Don't try and break it down too much. Don't get too lost in the details, right? Ephesians is going to get to the dirt and knit and grit of life soon enough. Just sort of let the flood of these images and these words roll over you, right? And then we're going to talk about some of the things that are said here that um, I believe are good news, although often they aren't presented that way, I don't think. So we're in the very beginning of Ephesians here. Uh, Chapter 1, we're looking at verses 3 through 14 tonight. And it says this. Uh, And it's not on the screen, so just take my word that I'm not making it up. Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that comes from heaven. God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in God's presence before the creation of the world. God destined us to be his adopted children through Jesus Christ because of his love. This was according to his goodwill and his plan and to honor his glorious grace that he has given to us freely through the Son whom he loves. We have been ransomed through his Son's blood and we have forgiveness for our failures based on his overflowing grace which he poured over us with wisdom and understanding. God revealed his hidden design to us which is according to his goodwill and the plan that he intended to accomplish through his son. This is what God planned for the climax of all times, to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with the things in earth. We have also received an inheritance in Christ. We were destined by the plan of God who accomplishes everything according to his design. We are called to be an honor to God's glory because we were uh, the first hope in Christ. You too heard the word of truth in Christ, which is the good news of your salvation. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit because you believed in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance, which is applied towards our redemption as God's own people, resulting in the honor of God's glory. Lofty language. A lot to take in there. And tonight I want to spend just a few minutes on one of the main themes that you see throughout this opening Uh, parlay in in Ephesians I want to talk to you about the good news of being chosen right The, the writer of Ephesians is trying to be very explicit about the fact that we are recipients we are the recipients of something good and beautiful and eternal right It says he blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He chose us to be holy and blameless. God destined us to be adopted children according to his will. We have forgiveness based in God's overflowing grace. We have an inheritance and on and on and on and on. God has given, we have received. It says we are chosen. Clearly, uh, in the very beginning of this letter and beginning of this sermon, the writer is trying to shift the lens and focus on God, on who God is and what God has done. Everything else will come into place and fall under this. Another way of saying this is that these opening verses are here to magnify God. In the same way that uh, taking a magnifying glass or a microscope helps you see anything's nature more clearly, right? And that's that's a biblical term. Uh, In fact, that's always the term, that that translation of the term has always resonated with me a little more than the translations that you see in Scripture often, which is glorify. Most of the time when you see the word glorify in Scripture, there's a couple Greek words that lead to that, and you can either say glorify or you can say magnify. I like the word magnify. I like the kind of concrete image that gives, right? Uh, Glorify can sound almost a little more selfish, like, like, hey, everybody, throw me a parade kind of thing, and I know that's not what it means. But magnified paints this picture, something happening that gives clearer focus to who God really is. But as this lens is focused and the subject is magnified, we are told that all of this was God's choosing. God has chosen us. God has destined us. And those words have been the fodder for much theological argumentation over the centuries, which you may or may not be familiar with or care about. And depending on how you've been taught about that idea, it may feel more like good news or bad news, the idea that we've been destined or chosen, right? I want to argue that it's good news, even if not in the way you've heard before. You've heard me say this a lot, so it will not surprise you when I tell you that I think we need to divorce the idea of being chosen and destined of God We need to divorce that from uh, the I'm garbage theology that is so prevalent. And we talked about this even just a couple weeks ago. I was brought up in what I, I call it, there's other fancier words for it, I call it I'm garbage theology, which is the idea that before I can do anything else, I have to realize that I am totally and completely worthless. Then I can understand God's love and God's grace. But first I have to realize how terrible I am, right? That's what we talked about growing up. That's that's the the theological framework I was brought up in. In other words, the only way for something to be truly God's choice and to be the most loving it can be, I have to have nothing redeeming to offer, right? Not only does it not need to be the result of my will, but I have to contribute exactly zero, nothing, I have nothing to offer God. Otherwise, the choice is not purely God's alone. There's something in it for God. It's partly our decision, so the argument goes. If I'm not garbage, then can God really be gracious and loving? Right? And then suddenly, uh, the, the good news of what God is lovingly doing for us carries with it this hidden gut punch of how utterly and totally worthless I am. Now, If I talked like this to my children, you would consider it abusive. right? If I ended each night as I'm tucking Lillian in, after we've read the stories, she's asked for the water, got up to use the bathroom, uh, said that there's something in her closet, whatever the list of 40 things is that she can waste time doing every night. If we finished all of that and I turned off the light and I kissed her on the cheek and I hugged her twice and I did the things I always have to do and I said to her, honey, do you want to know how much I really love you? And she looked at me with her pure little eyes and said, no, Daddy, tell me. And I said, you can know how much I love you because I don't think there's anything redeeming or inherently worthwhile about you whatsoever. I mean, I get nothing from this relationship, Lillian. You give me nothing. And yet I'm still here. Every night I'm still tucking you in. Do you see how loved you are? Because I'm getting nothing out of this. You are worthless in and of yourself. Have a good night's sleep, honey, and then walked out the door. Feels a little weird when you frame it that way, right? You would rightfully think I'm probably not a very good parent if that's how I was ending every day with my child, and you would probably already be taking up collection to provide for whatever her needs would be later on in life. But for some reason, we talk about ourselves and God this way, even though Scripture is littered with parental images in regards to us and God. And in fact, Scripture claims very clearly that however good a parent you are, God is better. So even though I was raised on this way of thinking, I honestly just don't buy it anymore. And I know where you chapter and verse it. I know what you can pull out to make the Bible say that. But uh, the, the bad news is I can make the Bible say just about anything if I pull things out and want it to, right? That's just not how you do theology, I don't believe. So if you were at all raised like that, if you're like me and talk of being chosen and destined for something by God carries that little bit of a hidden gut punch, I'm going to ask you to try and separate it out And consider what a beautiful idea this is without the hidden punch. I'm going to suggest that we don't need the garbage theology with it. The truth is there is nothing better than being chosen. For someone free of obligation, not because you're holding anything over their head, not because they owe you, to just choose you is the greatest thing. You've all experienced it one way or another. You've experienced the backside of it. You've experienced not being chosen. You've experienced being chosen. Now, I was not the kind of kid in school who was chosen last in the dreaded electing of your team in PE. I wasn't the last kid chosen. But I was also definitely not the first. Uh, In fact, keeping my run of being purely average in almost everything uh, I was right on that middle part of things. I was on that bubble uh, between being chosen to actually help the team and the choice being completely arbitrary, right? And you know that always gets to that point in the choosing where the captain is like, I want this person, I want this person, I want this person, and then their whole body language changes when they realize at this point the choices don't matter, right? And so what I always hoped to be during that time was someone who is like, Dixon's on my team and not, um, I'll take, it doesn't matter. Dixon, you come over here. That's when you know, oh, I'm not getting the ball. I'm not going to contribute. It doesn't actually matter, right? And it shouldn't have been a big deal. But when you're a, a 9, 10, 11-year-old boy in PE class, at least, uh, I don't know, I'm sure girls have their own version of this. Maybe PE was the same way for you as girls. But for me, it mattered. It mattered deeply whether or not I was chosen. Uh, it made. It would make or break that PE class for me, whether or not I was chosen. And the best thing that could happen to me, um, because again, I was never the first one picked just out of skill level, and I knew that, I was aware of that, but occasionally I would experience the amazing grace of having one of my really good friends be one of the captains. And when one of my really good friends was a captain who cared about me, cared about how I felt, it mattered to them that I felt good about myself and was happy the rest of the day, when they were captain, I still didn't get chosen first because they still wanted to win. But I would move up the draft significantly and I would make it to the right side of the arbitrary selections. I might get third or fourth, maybe even fifth, but I would be chosen as a contributor. And there was some intent in that choice. There was some affection in that choice that transcended really whatever I could or could not actually offer to the situation. It feels good to be chosen. And Ephesians begins with the good news that God has chosen us. That the creator of all things, the creator of all things, looks down upon us, little us, and says, Yes, I want you with me. And not just chosen for a team, but the language here is adopted into the family. Chosen to be part of the family, not obligated, not legally bound, chosen to be part of the family. I don't just choose to play alongside you. I choose to make you my family. I choose to lay down my life for you. I choose to leave you an inheritance so that even my, in my death you are loved. Not because I have to, not because I'm required to, because I choose it. I choose to sacrificially love you. You are chosen. The very fact that you are drawing breath right now means you are chosen by the author of life. You are not an accident, and the life you are living is not arbitrary. You and I are here for a reason. And we learn in in this first part of Ephesians that the reason revealed in Christ is to bring heaven and earth together in one place, to create those thin spaces where we begin to get glimpses here and now of the way things will be and should be. And it says that plan will be accomplished, right? Now, that doesn't mean bad things aren't going to happen. It doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean we're not going to struggle. Jesus and all of his disciples suffered and struggled. They all were hungry. They all wept. They all bled. They were all beaten. They were all put in prison. They were all killed. It doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. It doesn't mean that you and I don't have the freedom to cause harm or bring a little bit of death into this world instead of a little bit of life. But it does mean that there is nothing within us or within this world that is beyond God's reconciliation, and we are chosen to be a part of this work. It says all things happen that God intends. Now, I don't believe that means that God controls everything, that every good or bad thing God is manipulating, and we're just kind of passive pawns in the whole thing. I don't believe that's how it works. I like the image of a chess player. They say that a master chess player can think 30 moves ahead. Now, you may just think, wow, I don't know how to keep 30 of anything in my head. That's not 30 things. That's way more than that, right? Right? Because if I'm sitting across the table from a master chess player and we start playing, I've got a lot of different options that I can do. And now he's and that, that person, I said he, could be a she, sorry, didn't mean to be sexist. Uh, the, the, the chess master has got to be able to consider every possibility for every move that I make. And then every second move I make based on that first move. And every third move I make. So you're talking about... All these possibilities branching off from, and a master chess player can think 30 levels of that ahead. Right? That's thousands of possibilities that they're all considering at the same time when they know how to respond. What that means is, I can play on the same board as the master. I may choose to play well. I may play terribly. It might take two minutes, or it might take an hour. But the master is going to win. master's going to win, right? Not because he's playing both sides of the board, but because he can't be outplayed. God is in the midst of doing something, and we have been chosen to be a part of it. We have a purpose in this place. We have been chosen to live this life with purpose, as mundane and disappointing as our lives sometimes are. You are chosen to You are adopted. You have been given an inheritance with intent, for a reason, out of love. And that is a big, beautiful idea. And I know it's not that easy. I know life is messy, and again, this book is going to get into it. But maybe this week we can just take a step back, take a deep breath, and own that beautiful mystery. That we are chosen. God has chosen us to be a part of something beautiful in the midst of a very broken world. And often even in the midst of our own broken lives. We are chosen and that is worth celebrating. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you choose us. That as undeserving as we might be, as unimpressive as we might be, as little as we feel like we may have to contribute to the cause, you have chosen us. And God, you have chosen us because you love us. Because we have infinite worth in your eyes. Because our very existence is something to celebrate. God, our prayer tonight is that each of us uh, might be reminded once again that we're here for a reason. as arbitrary and pointless as so much of our lives can feel like they are sometimes, we are chosen for a purpose. You are in the midst of reconciling all things. You have chosen us to be a part of that. God, may we take a step back. May we raise our head above the troubles of our own lives for a moment and remember that good news. Thank you that we are chosen. Help us to be a part of building this new kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We love you and we ask all things in your name. Amen.